A quick warning. During this episode, we discussed the risks of becoming a corporate junkie, including the subjects of burnout, exhaustion, and suicide, including suicide ideation and having a bucket list and an expiry date. Listener discretion is advised, as some of the content of this podcast may be difficult for some to listen to. Hi, my name is Rachel and I am the host of Things I Wish I'd Known. I decided to set up this podcast because A, I love talking, I love learning from people, I love conversation and B, there are so, so many things I wish I'd known in my past, so many things I wish I'd known about my mental health, about self-care about magic, mystery, spirituality, about so many things that I know now, these crazy new breakthroughs in science, frequency, sound, all kinds of things that I'm now so passionate about that I wish I'd known. And I'm hoping that by sharing these conversations with you, I'm going to be able to maybe relieve some suffering, maybe share some laughs and share some knowledge. Some of it you may think is amazing, some of it won't resonate and that's okay. But I really, really want to get this knowledge out there. So I hope you enjoy listening to things I wish I'd known. And welcome to Things I Wish I'd Known. You are here with your host, Rachel, the founder of Welford Wellbeing. And today I am talking to Sarah Ross. Now, Sarah is an incredible woman. She's not only the founder of Your Reason to Breathe, helping entrepreneurs and executives reset and recharge and thrive after burnout, but she's a burnout recovery expert. She's written books on the subject. She's the author of Activate Your Life. And this book includes 50 transformational exercises from coaches all over the world. So it's not just her knowledge you're tapping into when we speak to her. It's all these other coaches and all of her life experience as well. I'm really excited to be talking to you today, Sarah. Thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you for having me. You're so welcome. So I guess it's really, your story just blew me away when we had our conversation to, to talk about whether, you know, yeah. to come on the podcast. So I'd love it if you'd just give the listeners and anyone watching on YouTube just a little intro into like who you are and how did you get to become a burnout recovery coach? Right. So I was the epitome of, I call it corporate junkie. Right. So I chased every title, promotion, pay rise. If I wasn't getting it in one company, I would move to a company that would offer me, you know, what I thought I wanted, needed. And about five years ago, I was burnt out. Right. So my, I had given up my dream job to stay at home and actually help my partner who was stressed. And shortly after leaving that job, he left me. And then my health started to deteriorate and my body was screaming red flags at me. And I was just like not listening to any of them and eventually got to the point where I I left my job. I was burnt out, but I really didn't feel like I had anything left to add. Yeah. You know, my brother had new baby at that point, two babies. You know, my parents seemed to love the role of grandparents. I wasn't anywhere close to giving them that. So I was like, well, what am I doing here? What's the point of me 
being around. Yeah. And basically came to the conclusion that there wasn't much point in my eyes. I wasn't adding value to anybody. And therefore I would, you know, basically I picked my expiry date. So I picked a date on which I planned to end my life. Wow. Deciding that, you know, I'd just seen my 37th birthday and I didn't really want to see my 38th. Wow. But I had just left a company with a large sort of pot of money, redundancy package. And therefore, you know, there was time to do the things that I'd always wanted to do. You know, I was in that, I had a bucket list and I was going to make sure that I covered some of the things on that before my life was going to end. And one of those things was to volunteer. And so I found myself in an orphanage for disabled children in Vietnam. These children are abandoned because it's seen, it reflects bad on the family that they're disabled. Mm. So they are abandoned, given up to the orphanage. And they basically just needed me to hug them, laugh with them, play catch, build Lego, draw, color, that sort of thing. And that was something I could still do and still felt that I was making a difference. So basically that's where I was, but I still had this date in mind and I still had everything planned to, you know, finish my life at that date. And it came to Christmas day and I, for some reason, decided that my last Christmas, I was going to be Father Christmas. Now, I'm a fairly big girl and I'm much taller than the Vietnamese. So I couldn't even buy shorts or a T-shirt in the market. I remember trying to buy clothes in Thailand and I had the same problem because I'm like about, I don't know, six to ten inches taller than any woman. Exactly. (laughs) Even to the point where one Vietnamese lady, they're quite direct, just looked at me and told me there was nothing in the shop that would fit me. And she was right. Not the nicest thing to hear, but she was right. And it saved me, you know, at least half an hour of her going, no. It's no, not gonna work. <laughs> I remember I bought, I think it was a bikini that I bought in Thailand and it was like, I think it was four or five X's L. <laughs> and I was like, this is really bad for my self-esteem. I'm sure I'm not that big. <laughs> I think I was like a size 12 at the time in the UK <laughs> sizing. It was crazy. Well, I remember going into the Nike shop. Yeah. And I was like, well, I have like several pairs of Nike leggings. This is fine. As long as I can get a Nike XL, I will be fine. Yeah. And then, so I found them and I was like, oh my God, this is amazing. I finally found something. And then you actually read the label and it was based on a different size. Right. So in the Western world, it's based off somebody, I think it's about five foot eight, five foot nine. In Vietnam, it was based off somebody five foot four. Yeah. So even though I had found what I believed was the product that I needed in my size, there was no way it was going to fit because it was going to be at least six inches too short. So you can imagine my surprise when I then find a Father Christmas outfit. That fitted. That fitted. Amazing. And everything, wig, beard, hat, the lot. I was like, well, okay, this was obviously something I was meant to do. And I spent the day as Father Christmas, you know, I had a couple of people helping me, but we gave out sweets and chocolates and had my beard pulled and And this everything. was still in the place? Of- this was still in Vietnam. Yeah. Um, now, they don't have Christmas. It's not a holiday they celebrate. So it was, you know, it was for them, it was just completely strange that you yeah. know, somebody dressed up, but they were getting sweets. So they were, but- they were quite fun <laughs> with everything. They were great, yeah. And then at the end of the day, they, the staff actually told us that one of the girls was really, really sick and she wasn't expected to make it through the night. So, 
if we wanted to say our goodbyes, we should do them before we left for the mm. evening. And I walked into this room, room one in the orphanage, and I'd never been in there before. I didn't know any of the children in the room, but I went over to the crib where she was lying and leant over and she reached up and touched my beard. Mm. And I stood there and actually watched her breathe. And she's about four or five. She's very, very sick. And yet she's still fighting for every single breath. Mm. You know, she's fighting for every minute that she's got left. And that was the moment that it dawned on me that, you know, she would fight, yet she has absolutely nothing in the world, no family, no prospects. She's not educated and never would be. And yet I had everything she would probably wish for, education, family. I was traveling around the world and I was ready to give up. Mm. And that was the moment that I realized there was something else for me to do. Wow. That must have been so poignant. I remember taking a deep breath and leaving that room and feeling like that I was finally breathing again. Wow. Um, That's incredible. It's amazing just how, you know, one person or one moment can completely change your mind from I'm going to attempt to take my own life to, okay, I can continue to go on now. Yeah. I think that's something that's really important for anyone listening to this that might be in a, not in a great space right now. And maybe you're listening to get advice or maybe you're listening to get inspiration or whatever you're listening or however you got here it can literally be like that on the flip of a penny I know mm-hmm. through my experience and now all the different people that I've been speaking to how many people have said you know it was that one moment where I just suddenly changed my mind yeah and like I said I I had never been in that room in the orphanage up until that point mm. so why on that day you know, to say goodbye to a little girl I had never even met, did I go into that room? But some, wow. something guided me there. I always think this, though, you know, the, the further I get down my path of spirituality and my path of connection to myself, I guess, I, I see it as, the more I think there's no coincidences. No, absolutely. And so when I left the orphanage that night, I went back, you know, I went back to the guest house where we lived. Mm. And there was only one business card in my wallet and it was from somebody that I had met two or three months before safe to say hated with a passion (laughs) why did you still have their business card then (laughs) well I don't know but when I met Bernard Hiller who's actually an acting coach in LA yeah he seemed to be able to see everything he was fairly intuitive right and I was worried that if he could see everything then I wasn't very good at hiding it So if he could Ah. see it, everybody else could probably see it. And that scared me. And he had told me that he would help me make my dreams come true. Now, he met me at a very dark place in my life. Mm. And I was like, well, you know, that's not, I don't really need that. So whatever. But he then made me sit with him at lunch. And it was the worst hour of, you know, one of those, you know, one of those situations where you're just like, why am I sat here? Mm. Why am I talking to you? you know, I never, ever want to be in the room again with you. You know, when you walk out that door, I am going to be so happy. Yeah. And yet I had his business card and his book and they were the only, like I said, that was the only business card in my wallet that night Mm. when I got home and his was the only book in my room and his book is called Stop Acting, Start Living. Right. So yeah, I don't believe in coincidences. There is a reason why when I was packing 
my stuff, I took them with me. Yeah. Because that night, what I needed was somebody to ask for help. Right. Because I knew that I didn't want to follow my plan. You know, I didn't want to end my life, but I didn't know what to do differently. I didn't know how to feel differently. And more importantly, I didn't know what to do next. Can we just touch on that point for a moment as well? Because I know in my experience with burnout as well, I very much felt like I knew something was wrong towards the end, only about two weeks before I fully burnt out. The rest of the time, I didn't think there was anything wrong. I just assumed everything was fine and normal, even though with hindsight, it clearly (laughs) was not fine and normal. But I... It was very complex for me to understand, A, how I was feeling, and B, what to do about it, because I was so exhausted, and I was finding, you know, basic day-to-day things hard to do, like, just to be able to get up and get to work and present as if I was like a, in inverted commas, normal human being, whatever that is, was almost to the point of exhaustion, just to present as you know that I'm functioning and that I've got my life together and that people shouldn't worry about me which is yeah mad that you would spend so much time and effort on that rather than just saying help <laughs> I need some help but I didn't you know and I, like you one of the things you mentioned a minute ago was around if he could see it other people could see it and I think I lived in this space of fear that I was going to get caught out somehow like people were going to realize that I didn't have it as together as I was showing And that was a real fear. So how did you, I guess, get from knowing there was something wrong, knowing you wanted to change that, but not knowing how to, what what were the steps that you took? Well, I I wasn't 100% convinced. (laughs) Yeah. And so when I got back, when I got back to the room, I knew, and even Albert Einstein says it, the, the thinking that gets you into a problem can't get you out of it. Oh my God, yeah. And I was very aware that as long as I was thinking about my plan, this date, I was in control. Yeah. But I didn't know how to control anything that wasn't to do with that date. It had become such a fixation for me. It's quite a a bit, it sounded like quite a big plan as well. Like how, how many kind of months did you give yourself? Six. Wow. That's quite a, you know, like it's quite forward thinking, isn't it? In terms, and you know, because I wanted a date that wasn't going to screw up other people's lives forever. I didn't want it to be close to Christmas or mm. birthdays. I also didn't want anybody to know what was going on. Yeah. So you know, I went away on holiday with my mum for her sixtieth birthday. You know, we. I went. You know, I was still booking onto personal development courses. I was writing a website during during this time and I still had all this plan. Wow. Because as long as I was hiding everything, nobody could know just how bad everything was. Mm. And you touched on it there, this fear. Those were the fears that kind of kept everything in, you know, in check. Because mm. if I didn't tell anybody I was struggling, nobody would know I was failing. Yeah. And if I didn't talk to anybody, I couldn't disappoint anybody. Yeah. And if nobody knew what was going on in my head, because I never talked about it, then nobody could question me or provide me with evidence contrary to what I was believing, which was that I was worthless, had no value, and there was nothing left wow. for me. Yeah. It resonates and so much, so similar. It's those 
you know, it's those fears. And even if you look at, you know, and there's been a lot of high profile suicides, you know, Robin Williams, Kate Spade, Anthony Bourdain, all these people, when, you know, they asked their families and friends, none of them knew. No. None of them knew that these people were in a very, very dark place. Mm. And they had chosen to maintain a mask, a face to the outside world that everything was okay. I think it's more about, because this is something that I have thought about a lot. And in my experience, I feel like for me anyway, I can only obviously speak for myself, but it was more about having to admit it to myself. You know, like if I admitted it to other people, if I was like, hey, look, every time I cross the road, I pray that I get hit by a car, or I sit at work and stare out the window and fantasize about jumping out of it or whatever. A, I'm going to scare the people that I love because nobody mm-hmm. wants to hear that kind of thing. Yeah. And B, I'm going to have to really look at myself now and go, oh, something's really not not right. Something's really not okay. And that means I'm going to have to do something about it. And at the moment, I've barely got enough energy to even get myself out of bed and, and present this fake mask of that I'm really successful, I'm winning at life, that the thought of having to then find more energy and more time and more whatever mm-hmm. to, to start to unpack whatever was happening inside my head, which I didn't even understand. Yeah just seems like an impossible task and that was the point at which I was like I need help yeah but for me to reach out to family or friends at that point was I was going to have to admit just how bad I was struggling yeah and I didn't want that that was not an option because those were exactly the fears as to why I had never told them anything about the burnout and everything and so, you know, when I found this business card, it's like, well, actually, maybe this is the universe testing me. Am I really sure I don't want to go, you know, don't mm. want to go through with my plan? So they've given me the person I hate most in the world. <laughs> but to be fair, he was the only person I could remember saying, I will help you. Mm. But nobody else had said it because nobody else knew I needed help. Yeah. You know, so in that moment, I almost felt that the universe was giving me that final test to say, okay, you've had a bit of a revelation. Let's see if you really mean it. So there I was with this card and I emailed him. And in my head was, if he says, yes, he'll help me, then that's the path I'm supposed to take. And if he says, no, go away, you know, for whatever reason, then that's fine because I've still got my plan and everything's still in place to do it. It was just a test to see if I was really committed to it. Mm. And well, thankfully, he said yes, he would help me. Amazing. And so what were the steps from there? Like, I guess, what was your biggest learning from this whole experience? Because it sounds just incredible from going from, okay, I'm going to make this plan. I'm giving myself six months. I've made a bucket list of like all the things I want to achieve before I decide to end my life. I'm going to be really careful about the date I pick. I want to make sure it's not going <laughs> to coincide with any family or friends birthdays which was way more kind than mine I actually was on one of my family members birthday parties <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Party. so you know I obviously was not thinking in the same way that you were then you've obviously got this guy's card you, you don't like him but you've taken this risk to call him and he's luckily said he's going to help you so I guess what, I mean, there must have been so many learnings along that, that journey, but. Yeah. And he was my coach for best part of two years. 
Wow. So How it wasn't did you find that if you didn't like the guy. Or did um, it matter at that point? I never planned to work with him that long. Right. You know, I always assumed, you know, that it was going to be a one-off. Yeah. He, you know, and what I will say is that he never knew what was going on. Right. So when I reached out to help for him, I asked him to help me be a better speaker, to be more authentic on stage. Mm -hmm. I didn't let on the dark hole I was kind of coming out of. Right. Okay. Yeah. So for the six, the first six months that he coached me, he had no idea that's what I was coming off the back of. And I remember just before the very first masterclass of his that I did, he said to me, what's your, what's your reason for coming? He's like, what's your reason for even being here? And so in the back of my head is, you know, because I want to live, which seemed like a pretty good reason to me, Mm. but because I hadn't told him all this stuff. And this was about three months later. So we'd been working over Skype because I was still in Vietnam. He's based in LA. So, you know, we would have Skype calls. He would set me things to do. And he was like, so what's your reason? I was like, well, but I just said, I want to be the best speaker I can be. And he was like, there are people in the room who have dreams so much bigger than yours. I don't know why you should come to the class. And I was like, you know, and I was still in like, I was back in Switzerland, which is where I was living at the time in a life I had never planned to see again. Mm. You know, I hadn't planned to ever be back in my apartment or to see my friends and everything. It's like, okay, this is really hurting, but I knew I needed to be in his class. Mm. So he pushed me very hard to be better. Now, we both we both knew that I was never going to be an actress. That was not something I wanted to do. But there are so many, you know, there are so many similarities between acting and setting up your own business and the sort of skills that you need to have Mm -hmm. that that's what he was pushing me for do you think as well there was an element of like because you were trying to cover up and hide that actually by learning how to be a better actress you you know you might be able to go forward covering up as well yeah you think it wasn't that it was that you actually really were like this could be a way that I'm going to heal I wanted to be the best possible speaker on stage, but I was still convinced that that was going to be a very corporate topic. Right. Uh, it was going to be about ethical leadership. Talking, I, I wasn't looking at talking about burnout. I wasn't looking at using my journey. In yeah. fact, until yeah, six months into that coaching journey, I never planned to tell anybody what was going on mm. in my head at that time. It was like, it's in a box. It's been locked away. It's in the recesses of my brain and no one will ever know what was going on in my head yeah they'll just know that I went I was away for four months and I came back and I you know started to live my life differently but nobody will ever know the details and lots of people go and travel and then change their direction right yeah exactly you know you meet a monkey or an elephant and (laughs) you hug a panda I you know (laughs) I want to go on that trip (laughs) (laughs) yeah sounds pretty amazing new Um, therapy hugging pandas (laughs) hugging pandas and the well the funny thing is so in Bernie's classes we're actually called the pink elephants right and there is a story about you know two gray elephants have a baby elephant and it's a pink elephant and the pink elephant gets laughed at because he's different and and all this and then he learns to cover himself in mud so he too is a gray elephant Mm -hmm. and then 
one day it rains and all of the mud comes off that he's covered himself with and then it's revealed that he's a pink elephant again. Mm. But in the distance, he finds a tribe of pink elephants. Oh. And that's, you know, that was the story I heard in that in his very first class. I was like, you know what, maybe I'm a pink elephant. You know, yeah. and I, you know, I don't envisage that I'm going to be a TV star or a movie star, but maybe I'm supposed to be around people that think differently, mm. that, you know, are not corporate based. Mm. And so it doesn't surprise me now that when I finally decided to tell that story, it wasn't really my decision to tell it. Yeah. It just came out. So the question that, so we were doing an exercise in class and everybody was on one side of the room and Bernie would ask you a question, which was basically, what have you learned this week? You know, so it's not even deep or, you know, it's yeah. actually fairly surface level. And if you gave a good enough answer, you got to go to the other side of the room. And once you'd passed and went to the other side of the room, you were allowed to you know, hug each other, support each other. But on the other side of the room, you were stood kind of on your own. Mm. And I had been planning for 10 minutes. I was deliberately not catching his eye. So I wouldn't be next planning an answer that I knew would let him, that he would let me move to the other side Mm -hmm. of the room. And the whole story came out. I didn't plan it. I don't know why it came out that day, but it was the right time to tell it. And that's when I knew that's what I was supposed to be doing. I was supposed to use my journey to make sure that nobody else, whoever felt that they had nobody to ask, didn't have somebody to ask. That's amazing. Yeah, I I really resonate with that. I think sometimes when I'm finding it difficult with welfare well-being, you know, it's especially at the beginning when I was trying to set the company up, I was still struggling really with my mental health. I didn't realise at the time because I was so much better than where I was at. Yeah, I thought I was better. And I was a lot better, you know, but yeah. not as good as I am now. And probably in two years more time, I might be saying the same thing, right? Like, oh God, I wasn't in a good place then. I'm in a much better place now, right? Hopefully, anyway, we always develop. Yeah. But I, I always came back to, you know, why are you doing this then? Mm-hmm. And it was never, oh, because I want to make money or it's cool or I want to be on stage or I want to do this or do that. It was just, I don't want people to suffer with what I suffered with on their own. I don't want people to feel like I felt. I don't. I want people to know the knowledge that I've now got and how I healed myself and and the steps that I took so that they can do it too. Yeah. And and I hear that over and over again from people. It's just like I was in this such a horrible place that I need to make that worthwhile. Almost needs to. There needs to be a happy point to that story, mm-hmm. and that that can be helping other people, right? Serving other people. Yeah. Absolutely. And that, you know, at the end of the day, who did I ask for help? Somebody, almost a complete stranger who I didn't particularly like. But how much easier is it? Yeah. And so that's, you know, that's what I came to realize was my journey was to A, be open about what I had been thinking about and Mm -hmm. what it really meant so that other people would realize that they could speak about it. They could tell people they're not okay. Yeah. And that it doesn't need to be family and friends. You know, no. there are helplines, there are, you know, resources out there and there are Facebook groups, you know, yeah. there are ways to reach people. And even if it's only, you know, you send somebody a message saying, I'm not okay, then we can work on it. You know, we can talk it about it. And if you need that to be somebody who's quasi a stranger, then 
that's what it needs to be easier i used to bring the samaritans a lot they provide oh my god i'm such an advocate for the samaritans so if you are listening to this and you need help please ring them they're just amazing and they have an email and a text service now Mm -hmm. as well so if you don't like talking you can text yeah but i rang them so many times and i think it's that you know one day i rang it was a woman that i was talking to she had a really soft scottish accent and i said to her how come I can talk to you about this stuff and I can't talk to my friends and my family? And it was upsetting me because mm-hmm. I thought I'm close with my friends and family. It's not mm-hmm. like I'm a lonely person who doesn't have very many close friends and family. I've got a yeah. network. I'm very lucky. But I, when it comes to me being in this space, I just can't reach out to people, even though I know they love me and they would support me for some reason, something blocks me. And she said, well, I'm not going to ring you on Tuesday and ask you how you're doing. I'm never going to bring this back up on a day when you're feeling good. You're not going to have to relive it, the bad day, because we're never going to speak again, probably. Yeah. And I was like, wow, I never actually realized that. And I think there's a real power sometimes in just offloading to a stranger and just being able to listen. Yeah. And you to be heard and you to not be judged. I think it's really powerful powerful things so I think that's really poignant what you've said as well that you know you can be that stranger for other people mm-hmm. you know and I I was coached for another year maybe 15 months after that by the same guy and I was always improving and everything and I started to share my story in class mm. you know so you'd have a couple of days where people would get to know you in the terms of the exercises you were doing or you know the scene work or the dance class or whatever we had on mm. in class but you know on the penultimate day or even on the last day I would sometimes get up and tell my story and the number of times it would be just enough to trigger other people in the class you know we had several people came out for the first time we had wow. people admit to eating disorders and then getting the help that they needed we had people admit to being assaulted, rape, who then went on to get the help that they wouldn't have got if they didn't know it was a safe place to open up. Mm. And sometimes, you know, as great as the teacher is, as great as the coach is, it just needs to be somebody who's on the same side of the classroom as you, who says, you know what, me too. You know, it's not. So for me, that whole movement, you know, stretches so much more than, you know, sexual assault, or though you know all those allegations it touches everything it's mental health it's wellness it's well-being you know mm. being able to say to somebody me too yeah you know I, I think it's that connection isn't it it's like oh I'm not alone when you actually mm-hmm. feel connected you're able to kind of go oh okay cool it's not just me that feels like this it's not just me that's experienced this and that makes it almost seem easier to to deal with and I think when you see people that have overcome whatever it is that you're struggling with it gives you hope and it gives you that inspiration and that to know they always say don't they you can't you can't be what you can't see yeah there's so many so much evidence of this over the over the world you know of people who you know the four minute mile is a perfect example mm-hmm. right everyone thought you couldn't run a mile in four minutes and as soon as yeah. the guy did it poor guy you know somebody, <laughs> I think it was the next day wasn't it that someone yeah <laughs> Because then you can see it. And, um, you know, Rupert Sheldrake, I don't know if anyone knows this guy, but he has a theory called morphic resonance. And that is that, you know, there's this kind of cloud consciousness that when 
something is learned, it means that everyone taps into it so other people learn quicker. I find that fascinating and I think that is a potential thing as well in terms of just how when you watch the world, it's like as soon as someone seems to do something, so many other people um, can follow suit and quicker. Yes. Development of ideas. So I guess what advice would you give to your younger, your younger self? If you could kind of go back in time and younger Sarah Ross, what, what would you say to her? My advice to her would be to ask for help. Right. And not just, around the burnout and depression and and that dark place that I got to was when I started studying NLP so mm. neuro-linguistic programming one of the very first you know quotes or sayings that we were given was none of us is as smart as all of us mm. and that's kind of resonated ever since mm. so not just in the ask for help but don't try and do it all on your own yeah you know even the other other week, you know, I had just signed some new clients. And I was like, oh, I really need to get my invoicing system up, you know, because I didn't want to use PayPal mm-hmm. for this for these clients. And I was like, oh, I need to need it to look professional. And I was like, right, I've got 24 hours until I need to start, send them an invoice or something. And part of me was like, oh, I'm gonna have to research and spend hours, you know, working, you know, finding an, you know, a solution. Mm-hmm. And I happened to have a coaching call with my my current coach. And I just said to her, what do you use to send out invoices? And mm. she like she gave me a five-minute demonstration of the software that she uses. I finished the call, signed up for it, and was ready to go within about 20 minutes. Amazing. Now, if I hadn't asked her that question, I could yeah. quite literally have spent 24 hours oh, it's Googling invoicing solutions, asking in loads of Facebook groups, getting yeah. lots of answers, but never actually knowing what I needed it to do or what was best for me. Yeah. And actually by just saying, you know what, for now, I just need something that works. And if I find in three months time that it's not the right thing, then that is okay. I will just change it. That's such a (laughs) thing as well. I've really noticed that with having welfare well-being, the amount of times where I've procrastinated, like I wanted to do that. I've been talking about doing this podcast for about 18 months, two years, and I've only just started recording everything now. And I'd be going, oh, and this, and well, I don't have all the tech knowledge. And I was always focusing on what I didn't have. And then I was thinking, but all you really need is a basic microphone. You've got your laptop. Like, you've yeah. got guests. You've got loads of interesting people in your network who you can talk to. You've got loads of ways of reaching people that are just outside of your mm-hmm. network that you can talk yeah. to. And your real passion is just to get this knowledge out there. So stop stopping yourself (laughs) exactly (laughs) maybe yeah at the beginning you're not going to have the best lighting or the best equipment or the best whatever but but it's out there and it's only going to get better as you develop it an ongoing project it's not like you're going to do it and then the end it's you know this is something I want to continue on with and I agree it's like asking you know I, I asked quite a lot of people that I know that already have podcasts how did you do this what software did you use what, how are you yep. hosting? What did you do to do the design? Blah, 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 blah. And they just said, oh, this, this, and this. And I went, okay, cool. And then I just essentially copied yeah. <laughs> what they had already done because it's the quickest way of learning, right? And you can put yeah. your own spin on it. You know, it's not like my podcast is the same subject as theirs or that we're going to ha- even have the same personality or presenting style or anything like that. But the the background kind of, you know, bricks how to run a podcast is the, is same. the same for everybody. So it will really, always be different because it's you. Ask for help and take action. Yeah, they, they're probably the two 
two things. Right? And I think, I think the one that, you know, has probably resonated more with me in the last year when I've really got visible with my story and everything is done is better than perfect. Oh God. Yeah, perfection. <laughs> I'm a sucker for that perfectionism as well, man. I mean, that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yeah. <know? laughs> Cause I'm, I'm really learning that too. Just get it out there. And also because perfectionism in my experience is part of fear right mm-hmm. it's like a fear of you're not good enough or something along that spectrum so unless it's perfect I can't put it out because if it's not perfect I'm not perfect and then people aren't going to like me or whatever it goes back to and actually nine times out of ten even things that I've put out that I'm not that proud of that I think oh I wanted it, this to be different mm-hmm. or next time I do it it's going to be better it's going to be like that people are like, wow, this is amazing. (laughs) And you're like, oh, is it? I didn't think it was that good, you know? So yeah, seven, I think it's Shah Wasman that taught me seven out of 10 is good enough. Yes, absolutely. So finally, I guess, what do you, you know, what do you wish you'd known? What do you wish you'd known about burnout, about suicidal thoughts, about all that stuff before you're where you're at now? So when I'm speaking on stage or when I'm working with private clients or even with co- corporations, I use a set of Christmas lights Great. as a kind of metaphor Yeah. and the old fashioned Christmas lights. So, you know, they've been in the attic for a, for a the year. Sort of big ones. The massive, great lump of lights. Yeah. And you plug them in and they don't go on because there's one bulb that is unscrewed or broken. But until you find that one bulb, it's dark. Wow. And to me, that represents burnout, depression, anxiety, stress, that actually we are not looking for the huge things. It's actually little things, you know. So a light bulb won't go on. And obviously I have a set of lights and I've tried these out. You know, it can be as much as a couple of millimeters that it's unscrewed. That means none of them light up. If you think about it in a chain of lights that's 50 foot long and you've only got, you know, one millimeter to twist it before all the lights come back on. Wow. That, you know, and I'm not trying to diminish, you know, some people have huge problems. It's not goosebumps from that. It's not about, it's about finding those little things that make the lights come back on, about putting a smile back on your face before we start worrying about how we deal with you know, you hate your job or stress like that, you know, the more times a day you can put a smile on your face, Mm -hmm. the less easy it is for things like burnout and depression to completely take hold of you. Completely. And I think I completely agree with you. It's the small things because stuff like I notice now more than in the past that because I, I'm completely free of medication and all that kind of stuff. I'm not saying that's everyone's path, but that, that's been my path and I'm really grateful for that. However, if I don't meditate, if I don't do morning pages, if I don't see a therapist of some description, whether that's, you know, the more traditional at the moment, I'm doing kind of EMDR and various things, but you know, I'll, I'll see crystal healers, Reiki healers, mm-hmm. I'll see shamans, I'll see talk therapists, whatever, wherever I'm at on my journey, but some kind of therapy, if I don't sleep properly, if I yep. eat a lot of sugar or have too much caffeine, all these things affect me. And I, ha- I have to be on top of all these little things in order for me to be at my best and to be within, 
you know, what I would deem a healthy boundary for my mental Mm -hmm. health. Yeah. And if any of those little things slip, I really notice it. So yeah, that analogy, wow, I got goosebumps with that. And, And I agree, you know, lots of people have got very, very big, serious problems. And, you know, having myself experienced a couple of pretty major traumas in my life that, you know, really did dictate a lot of stuff. But you can break, generally you can break those things down into more yeah. achievable chunks and and just work on one part of that you know so if it's that you're not sleeping because of that trauma then just work on that yeah you know it might be that you're not eating properly you're not sleeping properly you're not whatever but if you can just get your sleep back on track you'll probably yeah. feel a lot better and then once that's back on track you might actually be hungry because <laughs> you've slept properly yeah you know like it just there's so it's, many things where if you just try and work on one element of it it's so much more achievable I always say this if I'm working with people with depression because you know I do now believe that you can choose to be happy mm-hmm. but if someone had said that to me while I was in bed with depression bedridden I would have punched them in the throat if I could have mustered the energy to do so <laughs> And but I'm like, but my step towards happiness that day might not have been choosing to be happy, but it might have been choosing to get out of bed. Yeah. And I feel like that's the same with your light bulb analogy, right? It's like yeah. maybe that millimeter screwing that light bulb in one millimeter that day is getting out of bed or is yeah, you know, making that decision, okay, I'm not gonna kill myself, I'm gonna move, I'm gonna yeah. stay alive or maybe I can look at this differently. Maybe I can, maybe there's a possibility. Maybe there's a possibility that things could be different. Absolutely. Wow. So is there anything else? I really love talking to you. I'm just keep looking at the clock and I'm like, oh, I'm doing it again. I was, I was trying to like, I just love talking to people so much. I don't know why I tried to limit myself to a 30 minute podcast. It was probably a little bit stupid. Maybe it's good that I limited it to 30 minutes. It means at least every single podcast will be a minimum of an hour. <laughs> well, we'll be at least 30 minutes. <laughs> Maybe two weeks long, who knows? <laughs> Some somewhere between thirty minutes and a day. <laughs> yeah. Just leave me playing in the background. You'll It'll be fine. Take in. Um, so is there anything else that you wish that I'd asked you? Anything you want to add? Anything you want to share that you think, oh you know, that if I had one more opportunity to share one piece of advice, what would it be? So it kind of it kind of follows on from what we've just been talking about. So the chapter that I wrote in Activate Your Life is actually called Prioritize Happy. And it's about putting you back in your life as much as your job is. Yeah. So for those people that are burning out, you know, the one constant, the one thing you don't want to screw up is your job. So you will make sure that everything on your calendar, everything in your diary to do with your work is non-negotiable. Yeah. Conference call at five o'clock in the morning, you'll be on it. Stay late to work on a project, you will do it. Stay late in to order work on a project and then go on the conference at five a.m. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah. So you've just screwed up your you've just screwed up sleep. You probably haven't eaten properly. You've been snacking mm-hmm. at your desk, but all of these things start to add up. What priority happy is is about you know having a list of things that make you smile and things that you do that are just for you. So when I first did this exercise, I realized that I hadn't read a book in two years. And when I was a kid, I was that girl at school that if they said write a book report, I had written five. <laughs> I read I read all the time. Yeah. And when I, you know, when I 
first started on that healing journey, that was the biggest thing for me was that I was not doing things anymore that had previously made me happy. Mm. And not just as an adult, but things that like from a kid, I would make me happy. Mm. And so I would just invite anyone who's feeling, you know, a bit down is to just try and make sure at least one time every day you do something that makes you smile. Yes. Whether it's watch a video of your favorite comedian, whether it's get outside and actually, you know, get some fresh air, but just something that for five minutes, 10 minutes, puts a smile back on your face. The impact of that on your body and the hormones and all the, you know, all the stress in your body is amazing. And it just takes, you know, just do it once a day to start with and then build it up. Such amazing advice. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me today. I think, you know, your story is incredible. I have no doubt that you must have helped so many people and hopefully this podcast will help even more. If you want to find out how you can reach Sarah, what she's up to, how to get hold of her book and all that stuff, then there'll be links underneath the video if you're watching this on YouTube or um, underneath the podcast link. So if you're listening to this, wherever you're listening to it, because it'll be in multiple places, you can just click the links below. Feel free to like, to share, to subscribe and to you know share this knowledge far and wide as you can. And we will see you again next week. Thanks for listening. Things I Wish I'd Known is brought to you by Welford Wellbeing. Check out my website at www.welfordwellbeing.com.